Hello and welcome to the BL Context. I am Nivedita Varadarajan. Fintechs were once the apple of the eye for the Indian startup universe. But now, they are facing several challenges. I have with me Hamsini, Chief Research Analyst at the Hindu Business Science Portfolio to tell us more. Uh, welcome to the program. Hi Nivedita. Hamsini, I have, uh, you, in your recent story, you talk a lot about some of the issues the fintech startups are facing. I love the WWE example which you used in it. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I was a big fan of WWE uh-huh. at one time and uh, it inspired me a lot. What it taught me as a person and I think I was able to relate to it for fintechs also is that you really have to, it's the audience that you're playing for, you play it for the gallery and if you don't stick to your promise of offering something interesting, innovative, new dialogues, new punchlines, you're done and out. Fintechs have a lot in common and I'll tell you how. So when they came in, it was not, I mean, people didn't really look at them as a serious player. They were like seen more like a support function kind of a thing. Mm -hmm. And they were happy doing that. But suddenly, and we'll come back to the part on why and how sometime later, they became, you know, as big as um, a bank would possibly be seen in the customer's eyes. They're now nearly a $20 billion business in terms of valuation. They're huge. They're unmissable. And they impact us in our daily lives in a very, very significant manner that we cannot avoid fintechs any longer. They're an integral part of the banking system, the financial services system, and as a consumer in in handling my wallet and payments as well. The similarity to WWE is just this. You know, they had a very slow start. They were nowhere to be seen in the picture. And then one, two big events happened like demonetization in 2016. In fact, Paytm was, you know, possibly quietly sitting in one corner. Not many people knew about it. Their wallet people were like, what do I do with it? And then bang, when November 8th happened, and from November 9th, we couldn't use those old 1,000 rupee, 500 rupee note. It became a popular app in a lot of our phones. You know, mm-hmm. so that really accelerated fintechs from a user perspective. Demonetization, if that was the starting point, the pandemic we don't know how many number of times that we would have even stepped out to a shop and possibly if the number is zero, then you're closer to how the universe at large work, especially the first wave. And then what happened is that we grew comfort with it. And now people barely carry cash so much. I mean, nobody, uh, you will not find change for 100 rupees and 50 rupees any longer in uh, on this, uh, across the street vendors because all of us are paying through the phones, UPI apps and everything. So the second phase of push happened during the pandemic. And these are very significant events, like how there was a stone cold Steve Austin to put WWE on the map. That's what, pandemic did to uh, fintechs in the same language and the upi ecosystem also really helped it didn't it of course of course actually when fintechs were you know sort of created when they were conceptualized they were seen as a, a entity which would uh, 
sort of uh, ease out the UPI payments and all that. And it's only logical that when I'm providing a service, I gain some money out of it. Money that we make out of it is called as MDR. And RBI stipulated that, you know, UPI uh, transactions can earn a certain MDR. Then one fine day, what happened? The country decided to hold back on MDRs for UPI transaction. The point then was that we need to sort of uh, really uh, give an impetus to UPI because why why would I, I as a borrower, I as a customer, sorry, why would I want to pay like uh, a one paisa fee for every 10 rupee of uh, money that I'm sending out in my wallet? So that was mm-hmm. not motivation enough at that juncture for me to, you know, switch from uh, cash to UPI and that was the thought process. Government rolled back on MDR completely. But what that did was that models like phone pay, pay TM, razor pay and all that were built on this MDR revenue model. They all had to take a, take a big beating on their business models. That was the first time when uh, the fintechs faced uh, uncertainty in the system and they had to claw back entirely on their business. They thought over how to go about with it. So today... Although Paytm does about, uh, you know, uh, 35% of the total UPI uh, transactions, what money it makes from those transactions, it's very negligible. What it could have made if not for the uh, regulatory changes. So Paytm and phone pay and all of them started to move away from from UPI-based payments to other things. Pay, uh, they give insurance, bike insurance and also what are some of the things they're doing? Yeah. So uh, this was this happened out of force, Nivedita. So when uh, mm-hmm. uh, this whole MDR came down on them, they had to look at the alternate streams to make money. And they decided to be what in banking parlance, people call it as direct selling agents uh, for products. So which is why they're selling uh, insurance products, they're selling uh, gold loan products and mm-hmm. whatnot. So basically, all these apps, whether you look at it as phone pay, razor pay, pay TM, whoever, they're, they're all an interface between the customer and the uh, bank or the NBFC, which is actually the risk of lending. These guys don't do anything. They, they only have a fancy app, which facilitates very fast uh, uh, sanctioning of loans. Uh, so you you a couple of swipes, money comes into your wallet, money comes into your bank account. They don't really, uh, they earn by way of, you know, commission for every loan sold. So for these people, it's now become a volume game. Uh, lending business is a volume game and again like I said they don't take the risk of lending on their balance sheet their their focus is only to make sure that as many number of people as they can target get loans through these apps and that's what they're doing as an alternative to make good for the MDR loss. So in your article you said something about uh, ethical lending how are like there's a huge common problem now that we're seeing that the RBI is saying that lots of people are saying to the RBI, complaining to the RBI, saying that uh, people are coming to my doorstep and harassing me because I took a loan from such and such app. So uh, how are financial uh, fintechs doing something about that? How are the fintechs dealing with it? Yes, let's just step back. So fintechs started off as, you know, providing support to some payments uh, processes. Then they became aggressive on the payment side, facilitating payment for which they had to get MDR. Mm. Now that is not possible. So they started selling loans. So are fintechs really deep into finance in the sense that do they have the, uh, do they have the relevant uh, depth of subject knowledge to deal with money? The answer is no. 
Consequent to that, what happened was initially, this was a practice which RBI has clamped down in the last uh, six, eight months. Yeah. Uh, they would give out loans to customers at very uh, exorbitant interest rate, projecting as though it is a loan that has gone from their wallet to the borrower or the person who has opted for it from the app. Now, I mean, um, their cost of borrowing could be somewhere at around, let's say, 15%. The uh, charge that they impose on the borrower could in some cases were as high as 80%, 90%. There were like, you know, digital uh, pawnbrokers that we Mm -hmm. see on the road shops, I mean, roadsides. So that was the practice uh, at one time. And this, these practices really came to fore during uh, uh, the second wave, really, or the start of the second wave. By Jan, Feb, people were like getting very harassed by these fintechs as far as uh, you know the interest rates are concerned collection practices are concerned in in fact there were a couple of instances where uh, if i had a certain app i had to whether i like it or not allow that app to access my phone book and mm. uh, if i had defaulted uh, the uh, the app would just pick up you know numbers from my phone and send out random messages that i don't have enough money i'm shameless i can't repay a loan and you know stuff like that that yeah. kind of harassment was what a lot of people went through it's easy to say that you know uh, as a customer you also be aware of what your uh, rights and regu- uh, rights and duties are but then this is taking it to another level right so um, rbi had to step in and rbi like one of the uh, experts in my uh, story had mentioned, the RBI intervention happens when there is a certain scale mm. uh, and when there's a certain need to do it. And by mm. 2021, early 2021, fintechs were becoming a bad side of financial play for the entire ecosystem. So uh, as a first thing, what RBI did was that uh, they insisted that all apps uh, share the details of the lender to their ultimate borrower, ultimate customer. That means that they have to disclose who the bank is, basically. Yes. Okay. Yes. Huh. yes. So now let's assume I've, I, I have taken a personal loan uh, from some app, some mm. loan app. Let's not get in. Let's not get naming products here. But uh, and uh, that app has to say that you know this particular loan is from so and so bank, RBL Bank, IDFC Bank, Aditya Billa Finance whatever mm-hmm. right so what the actual lender is basically yes okay yes. and we even did a story on this uh, last friday saying that uh, you know rbi is now insisting that uh, banks and fintechs also sort of streamline their uh, uh, relationship as far as these uh, digital lending agreements are concerned but that's a different thing we'll come to that a little later so uh, what happens when there is a little bit of transparency for the borrower uh, if the app says that i'm i'm borrowing at 24% Whereas I'm able to do my own uh, verification process and I find out that that loan is available at, let's say, 17%, I can go directly to the lender. I don't have to go through the app. That's true. Yeah. Right. So as a borrower, RBI said, these are the basic things you need to do for upping the overall uh, transparency in the system. Now there are more and more such regulations coming out. Like for instance, a couple of weeks back, we we had uh, a circular from the RBI. Actually, it was a clarificatory circular. Uh, it was more like the fintech circumventing it earlier, saying that if you have a pre-availed line of credit from a bank or from a funding institution, you cannot uh, sort of um, uh, package it like a, a credit instrument. Uh, so this went against the spirit of, uh, you know, the BNPL products, the buy now, pay later products, 
So um, RBI is also, and RBI is in the process of working out, uh, you know, what should really be the uh, nexus between the bank and fintech app in case they enter into such digital lending agreements. What In terms of information, what is it uh, that has to be shared with the credit bureaus? Uh, with the customer and so on and so forth. So uh, the regulator has also woken up, maybe a little late to the party, but nonetheless has woken up, uh, saying that, yes, these are, uh, you know, these are potential uh, problems which can destabilize the system if not attended to. So then in your article, you mentioned there's another big problem, a problem that is the imbalance between the uh, P investment valuation and the actual market valuation. What caused people to, uh, the private investors to invest so much money into these startups? And why is there such a huge mismatch? If you see Paytm, uh, as you took in your own article, you explain there's a huge difference between the two. Why is it like that? Yeah, so um, see, uh, when these fintechs, uh, uh, let's take it stage by stage. When, I, when I'm an early stage uh, uh, company, I really don't have so much of projections. I don't have uh, so much of uh, visibility in terms of where this project is going to go. So the requirement for funding will be very, very high. And the losses will also be very high. Mm. But yet I managed to get that kind of money because I project the business as a play on the top line, the revenue growth. And that's what a lot of fintechs did for a very, very, very long time. Calling it as a play on uh, uh, market, opportunities the market size and so on and so forth but the reality may be a little different you know do every businesses which just uh, hinge themselves on market opportunities end up uh, really succeeding let's take a simple example not there really is- though exactly uh, there aren't so many homes with you know air conditions and the number of homes are increasing but nearly that doesn't mean that you know everybody is going to buy an ac right yeah. Right. So you cannot build a model based on those sort of, you know, 90,000 feet uh, uh, level estimates. It Mm -hmm. has to be more realistic. The other thing where these people went wrong is that uh, the immediate attention or the earlier attention of all these companies was how do I get the customer into the fold and Mm -hmm. how do I retain the customer? And all this retention, acquisition, everything happened at the cost of discounts, buybacks, paybacks, so on and so forth. Uh, there was never really, I mean, of course, the, the tech shop was there and the tech shop was strong, but um, there was ne- never really an eye for profitability. And any businesses which uh, which is which is going to look at profitability, not as a primary uh, line item in their PNL, uh, a more important line item in the PNL will end up suffering on these scales you can't you can't expect to do a volume business giving out uh, uh, flats uh, offers like this and not make net profit that is where the fintechs have really gone wrong so uh, your, your the the disparity between a top line and the bottom line can be you know you not even want to look at their numbers after that if you peeked at it once it can be very bad uh, just to give you a simple example mm-hmm. Paytm has been in operation for more than a decade now, but ask the company what its uh, EBITDA margin or operating margin is, it's somewhere in the negative zone. They st- uh, they, the problem here basically is that they don't have a road to profit. Is that the problem? 
yes they don't have a road to profit now are they built in a way that they don't have a road to profit or they just don't want to have a road to profit ah, that is something time will tell us mm-hmm. uh, because at some point uh, this this sort of crazy funding will come down you know paytm was built as a 6 billion plus kind of a uh, entity around yeah. its ipo and post ipo it's barely around a billion dollar it's just yeah. a little over a billion dollar in terms of mcap today right so mm-hmm. there is a lot of disparity and i think you have to blame the uh, backers also at some end you know because they just end up bankrolling whatever the losses are mm-hmm. unless you're going to have somebody in the position to say okay now you're making top line where you're going to make bottom line you you're not incentivizing your investment to turn profitable right and yeah. look at the kind of transactions that have happened till now series a has happened if a series a investor wants to exit they do a round of series b funding okay so that jacks up the valuation at series b series a the uh, percentage of investment of series a becomes smaller or negligible in some cases then series b investor wants an exit let's do a series c so money is getting substituted only with money mm-hmm. it's not getting substituted with a stronger business model uh-huh so that there lies the problem they are raising money to help the uh, investor exit but not raising the money to invest in the company itself yes and to add to that they're raising capital to make good for the losses that have earned up until now ha uh. but is that enough for me to you know ensure that i don't make losses going forward absolutely not because every time money comes in the mandate is different <laughs> so what is the way out of this vicious cycle simple money has to stop flowing and people have to stand up on their own like we often tell uh, little children that it's okay to ride a cycle get hurt fall down as many times you want but ultimately you will learn to ride a cycle properly at some point right mm-hmm. so exactly like that so uh, and we are seeing it in terms of numbers also last year i mean uh, uh, 2021 calendar year fintech had raised some insane 8 billion dollars of oh, capital wow. right so that was a jump of around 2.2 billion a year ago 2020 to mm-hmm. 8 billion we're talking a 4x jump now mm-hmm. how much have they raised uh, in the current year for the last two quarters put together it adds up to somewhere around uh, let's say 18 18 million or 1.8 less than about 2 billion right mm-hmm. so we've had from jan to july we've had or take june as a cut off we've had from jan to june going six months down we've raised just about 2 billion whereas last year this time we were more or less at that 4 5 billion kind of a level mm. right so where are we really money is already thinning out in the system this is what will really make the fintech start understanding uh you know how do i streamline my top line and how do i improve my bottom line maybe you don't need so much of volume mm-hmm. the existing customer base you can do your business in a better way that you can start making revenues i mean bottom line so is there a risk of some of these fintech players for, uh, falling failing see there's nothing called a failure in the fintech world because uh, thanks to the wonderful private equity money if i know that one model is not working but there's some there's there's one small good thing about that one model like for instance i'll get give you the uh, recent uh, uh, transaction that happened in the food tech space um mm. zomato right so zomato shut down its own uh, delivery model the the uh, grocery delivery model yeah. and it went on for an acquisition yeah 
because they wanted to, I mean, they saw something good somewhere else and the cost of building it here is going to be so difficult. So I'll throw out some money, I'll get that business. So in that sense of the word, there'll never be a failure in any, any business built with private equity capital. Because at some, <laughs> I mean, there could be an overlap of investors. There would be one person there who wants an exit and they see this acquisition as a good exit route and so on and so forth. So how many businesses will come forth to you as a failure? Answer is possibly zero. But there will be more consolidation that happened. Like how last year we had the Buildesk PayU acquisition happen last August uh, so, I mean, people will start acquiring, people will start, uh, you know, swallowing smaller players or equal size players also, uh, because if you have to focus on, you know, making a bottom line, a, a, a good, uh, respectable number at bottom line, the market has to consolidate in a meaningful manner. And I see that sort of happening. So uh, to answer your question uh, in short, they may not be failures, but there certainly will be a lot of acquisitions. So this brings us to my last question of the day, which uh, will fintechs continue to remain fin and tech or will they go either the fin path or the tech path? Will they, will they choose a lane and be like, I'm going to be a startup, which focuses on financial services, or I'm going to be a startup, which focuses on providing um, digital services to financial institutions. Is that the path ahead for some of them? Sure. And this will require a lot of introspection. Uh, there are a few companies who may may say that, okay, I will uh, reject the way uh, my compliance to regulations are. And I will I will do the fin part of the fintech. I will stick on to it. But rejigging is not going to happen just like that. It's going to come at a cost. So which means that, you know, valuations will uh, take a knock even if they decide to do that. Uh, but at least doing that is of good because somewhere you... There is, there is a possibility of uh, that particular business growing up to something in the financial services space. Mm -hmm. That's one alternative. But uh, will everybody be able to, you know, sort of explore that? For instance, Razorpay is now venturing into uh, HR solutions. Yeah. Uh, it's not just a, a fintech guy any longer. They do payroll solutions and so on. So we may see more of such diversifications. Uh, people who would be comfortable providing the tech shops for the larger financial players and uh, diversifying into other streams which could complement their current offerings or which could uh, be an addition to the uh, current comp uh, current offerings. Uh, in either ways, let's say somebody opts for option two, there again, uh, once you're, you're, you're going to play on the merits of your technology capabilities, the business is more like a service uh, provider or a, or a, a sub support service rather than a mainstream service. And support services aren't valued as highly as what mainstream services are. Uh, the, there is also issues around scalability there, right? So yeah. um, valuations will have to take a hit. So whether I decide to be a fin being in compliance with whatever the rule of the law is uh, and uh, also grow my profits and uh, revenues within that ambit, valuations will suffer. If I decide to be a tech guy also, because I'm a tech guy, valuations will suffer. So uh, valuations are going to get hit one way or the other. And that's something we'll have to uh, be ready to see in the coming months. Thank you so much, Hamsini, for explaining the issues in the fintech sector. 
i hope everyone had a deeper understanding of the problems in the fintech sector and i hope you'll all be back with us for another episode of the bl context until the next time this is nivedita signing off